Faye, I don't know about you, but pap smear changes happen so frequently, I feel like, and I can't keep up anymore now that my primary practice is really just in obstetrics. Yeah, and it's really difficult, I think, even for our residents to remember everything, especially with Creogs looming overhead in, towards the end of January. So what methods do you have of making sure that they and us keep up to date? Well, if I need a quick reference, one place that I can know I can turn to is the OBG project because I can hold this in my special library on my bookshelf and say, aha, this is the most recent thing that I know that they have read and up to date in a nice bullet pointed summary. And then they've even got an alert on their homepage right now to get you signed up to be able to know as soon as the newest recommendations coming from the USPSTF on cervical cancer screening get dropped. Um, that's pretty, pretty neat that you can be right on the front lines of brand new changes in patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And even more for residents, uh, they have the resident core curriculum. So you can go ahead and sign up for that um, and basically look at comprehensive OBGYN resources for your education. And of course, now the OBG project also has an app so you can access this even more quickly and easily from your phone. Get signed up for all of the great things that come from the OBG project, including OBG First, absolutely free for residents all four years on our website, creagsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Priyags over coffee. So guys, today we are going to be talking about primary ovarian insufficiency, specifically in young women. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, so we're going to talk about or identify some different etiologies of POI. We'll understand how to diagnose POI and recognize some signs and symptoms of the disorder. And then finally, we'll manage POI in young women or adolescents, um, both in patients who desire pregnancy as well as in patients who do not desire pregnancy. Um, there is a committee opinion number 604 that goes along with this that's been reaffirmed. So that'll be the reading that can accompany the podcast today. All right. So Faye, I know we have mentioned it on the show, probably in like our very first episode on primary amenorrhea. So it's been a little yeah. bit. Um, but what is primary ovarian insufficiency? Yeah. So the definition of primary ovarian insufficiency is a depletion or dysfunction of ovarian follicles with cessation of menses before the age of 40. Um, and you might have heard of it being called premature menopause or primary ovarian failure in the past, um, but the accepted term now is primary ovarian insufficiency. And it really shouldn't be confused specifically with menopause because even in patients with primary ovarian insufficiency, 5 to 10% of them can still experience spontaneous conception and delivery because there is still uh, some eggs that are still within the ovaries. All right, Nick, so let's start off with talking about now what causes primary ovarian insufficiency. So what are some of the things that we should be thinking about in terms of etiology? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of potential causes, but I'll start by saying the usual causes are due to chromosomal abnormalities or damage from outside things like chemotherapy or radiation therapy. 
So chemo and radiation are one important common cause. Um, immediate loss of ovarian function after chemo or radiation, particularly in concert with you know, cancer therapies, is called acute ovarian failure. And the highest incidence occurs after the use of the alkylating agents or another agent called procarbazine. The younger the patient is at the time of receiving chemotherapy, the more likely that some of those follicles will survive. Um, so particularly, you know, as we get into reproductive age patients, this is where, again, we'll talk later on about some of the things that might be fertility preservation type of stuff. Um, but you'll want to talk with them about that as they're getting older, in particular, if they're receiving chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Another common cause is the premutation of the FMR1 gene, or what we probably all know better as Fragile X. As a reminder, Fragile X is an X-linked dominant condition that's caused by an increase in the repeats of CGG on the X chromosome in the FMR1 gene. Typically, a repeat number over 200 is of concern. In Fragile X, there is genetic anticipation meaning that the number of repeats can basically increase as they get passed on to future generations due to errors of DNA replication. A pre-mutation is when there's 55 to 200 repeats, so kind of again just prior to that 200. In patients who have Fragile X or a Fragile X pre-mutation, they have about a 20% chance of developing POI in their lifetime, um, so they are certainly at risk. 1% of the pre-mutation carriers will experience final menses before age 18, um, which is certainly of concern there. Um, so again, for some patients in the workup of POI, we're thinking about that and genetic testing may be involved. Another common cause of genetic POI is Turner syndrome. So Turner syndrome, again, is monosomy X. It's a chromosomal abnormality, again, with one X instead of two X chromosomes. Certain people can also have mosaic Turner syndrome, which can also lead to POI, and that's where some cell lines have 46XX, other cell lines are 45XO. Um, and so kind of depending on where that cell line ends up can also lead to POI. When you evaluate an adolescent with primary amenorrhea and no associated comorbidities, about 50% of them are going to have chromosomal abnormalities. Um, and with Turner syndrome in particular, as you're thinking about it, there can be pubertal and growth delays um, that can help point towards the diagnosis. Less common thoughts for POI, but important to keep on your differential as well, can be things like gonadal dysgenesis, infection or infiltrative processes, Iatrogenic concerns, for instance, no removal of the ovaries for some reason, particularly if you're encountering a patient who had a quote-unquote cystectomy performed on them at a very, very young age. And then also there can be an autoimmune component. 4% of patients with POI have adrenal or ovarian antibodies that can actually themselves cause POI. All right, so that was a lot of causes, Faye. Um, I think probably, though, in practice, the thing that we're thinking about is how do we actually diagnose POI? 
And so here, and we have to say that unfortunately, there's no consensus criteria in terms of identifying POI, specifically in adolescents. And so often there is a delay in diagnosis. Um, so some adolescents, when they first present to you, they may have some hot flashes or vaginal dryness, but really that most common presenting symptom is primary ovarian insufficiency, where they begin to either have irregular menses or no menses. So in someone who is presenting with amenorrhea or menstrual irregularities for three or more months, it's really important to start to evaluate for all etiologies because, you know, POI is not the only reason that an adolescent could come to you and have menstrual irregularities. So you need to think about things like pregnancy, um, PCOS, hypothalamic amenorrhea, thyroid abnormalities, hyperprolactinemia, just to name a few other specific causes. And in terms of our workup, you're going to start, as we always do, with a history and physical. So you want to ask about things like menstrual history. Have they ever had a period or have they never had a period? Um, and you know now they are well beyond the age where we normally expect them to be getting their first period. You want to ask about family history of early menopause and, of course, other factors that may place patients at risk for POI, so the above etiology. So for example, um, you know, does the patient uh, have family members that are affected by fragile X, for example? You should then do a physical exam, and this should include looking for signs of disorders of sexual development. So is there normal breast development, axial and pubic hair development? And then also the question of, you know, is the uterus present or is the uterus absent? Because that's also going to help you figure out what is the actual cause of amenorrhea. The lab work that we then need to think about getting is a basal follicular stimulating hormone, or FSH, and estradiol levels. And so, again, don't get these when the patients are taking um, their oral contraceptive pills or other types of hormonal medications because it is going to mess with the FSH and estradiol levels. You also want to, again, make sure that you're not missing anything else. So you want to get a pregnancy test, of course, thyroid function test, and prolactin as kind of the first step in terms of lab work. Then, if the gonadotropins are elevated in that menopausal range, so typically, depending on your lab, that FSH should be in the 30s to 40s or even higher, then you want to repeat an FSH in one month to be absolutely sure that that's what's going on. And if it is still elevated, this is going to be diagnostic of primary ovarian insufficiency. And then hyperestrogenism may also be seen where the estradiol levels are less than 50 picograms per milliliters. And once that diagnosis is established, so once you actually say, hey, yes, I have POI, then we can start looking for reasons. And so this would include things like doing your karyotype to look for Turner syndrome, doing your fmr one premutation testing, looking for adrenal antibodies, potentially pelvic ultrasounds, and even meeting with a genetic counselor um, to talk about uh, their findings if you know you specifically see that there are other genetic findings. I will say that there are two tests that are currently being studied. So one of them is the anti-malarian hormone or the AMH, which I think um, you know a lot of people have heard about because there are now more commercial tests where uh, pa patients are going to see how fertile they are, quote unquote, and they're getting an AMH. So AMH is a value that we sometimes use to look for uh, current ovarian reserve, but it really should not be used to determine if someone is fertile or not fertile. Because again, even if you have diminished ovarian reserve, that does not mean that you have primary ovarian insufficiency, and that doesn't mean that you can't get spontaneously pregnant. The second is inhibin B, and this is not recommended because there's significant variability between menstrual cycles of your inhibin B levels. So you might see those two out there as well, but just as a caution for how they should be used in POI. 
All right, Nick. So let's say we've diagnosed our patient with primary ovarian insufficiency, and now we want to move on to treatment. So talk to me about how we should go about doing that. Yeah. So I think, first of all, before we even get into the treatment, um, to finish out on diagnosis and as you get into management, acknowledge that this diagnosis can be very emotionally distressing for your patient. Um, This is certainly something that I don't think people really get a good understanding of. And certainly depending on your patient's hopes, dreams, ambitions, hearing that they have primary ovarian insufficiency can really be um, troublesome. So you really want to focus your treatment into sensitivity to the patient's physical and emotional needs. Some patients may need referral to counseling or group therapy for support during this time. As we move towards treatment, you know, the goal overall physically is to replace some hormones that the ovary would be producing before the age of menopause. And these patients that are younger may need more hormone than, say, a menopausal patient. Um, Again, you're thinking about a young patient who's otherwise in their reproductive years, they really need some additional hormone. And so particularly in the adolescent patient, we're thinking about pubertal development issues, right? So breast development, we're going to need to initiate estrogen and increase it gradually before administering progesterone. So that way breast development is complete. Um, If you administer progesterone or add it in too early, you can get tubular breast formation as a complication. Um, And so with this, honestly, consultation to REI or pediatric adolescent gynecology for further management is really advised to guide this therapy. Ongoing hormonal treatment will be needed after um, breast development um, and be needed to prevent comorbidities. Estrogen, as we've talked about in our menopause episodes before can be given a variety of ways, transdermally, orally, or occasionally even you could consider transvaginal estradiol. Typically around doses of 100 mics daily is a therapy of choice. Oral estradiol, again, is an option, but there's a higher risk of VTE compared to transdermal estrogen. So there may be a preference to use uh, something that goes through and doesn't have that first pass metabolism. Addition of progesterone for 10 to 12 days each month is protective against endometrial hyperplasia, and so you do need to have that progesterone therapy. And then the instinct may be for the generalist practitioner to reach for birth control pills, OCPs. OCPs, though, have really a much higher dosage of estrogen than is needed, and so isn't the first-line treatment, um, though it is something that can be considered down the line depending on what kind of indication you have um, and where the patient is in their reproductive years and life cycle. All right, Faye, so let's talk now about more specific treatments and not just the treatments, really the associated comorbidities, though, that can come alongside POI and how we prevent those. Yeah, so sometimes people might say, well, you know, with premature ovarian insufficiency, what's the big deal? People go through menopause all the time. Why do we need to supplement the estrogen component? And that's really because we know that there are multiple associated comorbidities with POI, and that includes things that are devastating to people like bone loss and cardiovascular disease. So with regards to bone loss, we know that ovarian function loss early on can affect bone architecture. And specifically in these adolescent patients, when we know that bone accrual is at its maximum, it's really important to make sure that they have that bone accrual so they don't develop osteoporosis later on in life. 
Right now, there's not really a consensus regarding using DEXA scans or monitoring bone density annually. So there are some specialists who do do that, uh, but the implication of low bone mineral density in this population specifically is unclear given the overall low risk of fracture. So there are some people that may do yearly DEXA scans. There are some people that don't. Really, the treatment is going to be estrogen to give that back to hopefully allow for bone growth and bone development. Um, and as well, long-term use of things like bisphosphonates is not really recommended because of uncertain as- adverse effects and safety profiles. The next big thing to think about is that cardiovascular disease, um, because we know that those with early estrogen loss are at higher risk of cardiovascular mortality, earlier mortality than their counterparts. And so other than supplementing estrogen, which again is protective against cardiovascular disease, we need to make sure that there is annual monitoring. And so this should include things like routine visits that focus on other methods of preventing cardiovascular morbidity. So talking to your patients in advance about smoking avoidance, um, having an appropriate diet as well as exercise, and also doing blood pressure measurements annually and lipid levels every five years, even though they are otherwise young, healthy patients. And then the last thing to consider is that Patients with primary ovarian insufficiency are at much higher risk of having other types of endocrine disorders. So 20% of adults with idiopathic POI will experience hypothyroidism, most commonly Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, And while there's no formal recommendation, it is likely appropriate to start testing for thyroid insufficiency every one to two years because of this increased risk. There's also an increased risk of developing adrenal insufficiency. And so um, there's actually a 50% chance, again, for those with idiopathic POI to develop that. And so these patients really should should undergo yearly corticotropin stimulation testing to make sure that we're not developing adrenal insufficiency. All right, Nick. So I know we've talked a lot about estrogen as the main form of management, but I think, you know, the other thing that people tend to worry about with primary ovarian insufficiency, especially because these are young women, are their reproductive concerns and, you know, if they want to get pregnant or if they don't want to get pregnant, what are some of our recommendations? Certainly. For patients that want to start a family, they should really be referred to REI to discuss their options, um, ideally as soon as possible after diagnosis too. Egg cryopreservation is one certain possibility, particularly if it's early in the diagnosis. The REI can also discuss with the patient as needed other ways of having children. So using a donor egg, for instance, or if needed, a gestational carrier as well. Fertility can persist as long as a few follicles are present. So not only do we need to think about the fertility piece, but we also need to think about the contraception piece. Contraception should still be a discussion in these patients because, again, even though the ovary may be, quote-unquote, insufficient, there's still a possibility that one of those um, ovulation cycles may sneak through. So OCPs can be prescribed. Um, Other methods, though, such as IUDs or barrier methods can also be used. If an estrogen method is not chosen, you still need some form of estrogen supplementation, um, as we've discussed for the above reasons related to bone health and cardiovascular health. And if patients have a missed period, um, that should still warrant a pregnancy test because, again, pregnancy can still happen. All right, Faye. Well, I think that that does it for this episode on POI. Why don't we try to summarize? 
Sure. So we first talked about the definition of POI, which is due to um, the depletion or dysfunction of ovarian follicles that ultimately leads to the cessation of menses before age 40, but it should not be confused overall with menopause. We then talked about the causes of POI, and a lot of these are things like chemotherapy and radiation, but it can also be chromosomal causes like a premutation for fragile X, Turner syndrome, and also things like an adult dysgenesis and less frequently things like infection or an infiltrative process. Other causes could also be iatrogenic and even autoimmune. With the diagnosis of POI, unfortunately, there's no consensus criteria to identify POI in adolescence, and so there's really frequently a delay in diagnosis. Symptoms that can be present can include things like hot flashes, vaginal dryness, or someone who presents with amenorrhea or menstrual irregularity for three or more months. Again, you want to do a full evaluation in this for either primary or secondary amenorrhea. So your history and physical, particularly inquiring about menstrual history and a family history of early menopause, other factors that may place patients at risk for POI. Um, A physical exam should include signs for disorders of sexual development, such as absent or delayed breast development, and the presence or absence of a uterus. Lab work can start with basal FSH and estradiol levels. Don't check those when the patient's on hormonal contraception or other hormonal meds. A pregnancy test, and then thyroid tests and a prolactin. If your gonadotropins are elevated in the menopausal range, so an FSH of 30 to 40 or above, repeat the FSH in another month. If you get a second FSH elevation, this is a POI diagnosis. Hypoestrogenism is diagnosed when estradiol levels are under 50. And then once you've established a diagnosis of POI, you're going to start looking for your etiologies. So karyotype, fMR1 testing, adrenal antibodies, a pelvic ultrasound, and then of course, meeting with a genetic counselor subsequent to that. In terms of management and treatment, we really need to emphasize that this diagnosis can be very emotionally distressing to our patients, so making sure that we're also focusing on the emotional and psychosocial support for the patient as well. Physically, the goal is to replace the hormones that the ovary should be producing, and so because these are young women, they are going to need potentially more estrogen than a menopausal woman that we may be more used to treating. One caveat to this is that in patients who have pubertal, who are still developing in puberty and have breast development, we really need to make sure that we are initiating estrogen and increasing it gradually before we actually start giving progesterone because we want to make sure that there is normal breast development and not tubular breast development. All of this should be guided potentially by a specialist, an REI, or pediatric adolescent gynecology. We then want to continue ongoing hormonal treatment, usually with estradiol at the dose of 100 micrograms daily. Mostly this will be done orally or transdermally, with transdermal being the preferred method given the decreased risk of VTE, though some patients may also need transvaginal estradiol. Progesterone should also be given to protect against endometrial hyperplasia. Associated comorbidities that can go along with POI include things like bone loss, cardiovascular disease, and other forms of endocrine disorders. With bone loss, there's no consensus regarding monitoring with DEXA scans or other bone mineral density testing, but the implications um, are significant but unclear. There's a low risk of fracture overall, fortunately, in this population. Long-term use of bisphosphonates is not recommended. With cardiovascular disease, annual blood pressure measurements and lipid level measurement every five years is recommended because those with early estrogen loss are at higher risk of cardiovascular mortality. 
With endocrine disorders, a shocking 20% of adults with idiopathic POI will experience hypothyroidism, commonly in the form of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So it's appropriate to test for thyroid insufficiency every one to two years. And up to 50% may have a chance of developing adrenal insufficiency. So testing for adrenal antibodies and undergoing yearly corticotropin stimulation testing is also reasonable. For patients who desire to become pregnant, these patients should be referred to your REI specialist as soon as possible to talk about different methods of achieving pregnancy. This can include things like egg preservation, if that's possible, but also discussing other methods of having offspring, so donor eggs or having a gestational carrier. And remember, not everyone wants to get pregnant, even if they have POI, but having POI does not guarantee that they are sterile. And so fertility can persist, and therefore these patients, we must talk to them about contraception. OCPs may be prescribed, which can have a dual effect essentially by both being a um, by both being contraception as well as giving them the estrogen that they need. But other methods can also be used. And remember, a missed period should still warrant a pregnancy test. All right, Nick. I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Coffee one on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram at Coffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. Show notes for this episode, all of our previous episodes, and that Rosh Review Question of the Week are on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to email us to give us some suggestions, let us know about a correction, or just want to say hi, email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.